Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we begin. Our Father, we uh, thank you for bringing us together tonight. We pray, Lord, your blessing on our time with you, with one another, and with your word. We pray open our hearts and minds to your word as we gather. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text for this uh, Lord's Day is uh, John chapter 7, verses uh, 53 to 8, 11. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll start talking about it. And everyone went to his own home. But you remember, this is after the feast. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as those he did, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, Who is without sin among you? Let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Well, this is a familiar passage uh, in, in Scripture. Now, uh, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to look at it and, and take a notice of how your Bible uh, describes this um, passage. Some of them will have little brackets by it. Some of it will have little uh, asterisks by it. Um, if you have a just the traditional King James text, it shouldn't say anything. In the New King James, it probably won't say anything, but the rest of the texts will have some kind of a mark telling you that um, this is not in the best manuscripts or something like that. The whole section? The whole passage we just covered. And so I wanted to spend a few moments just talking to you about that. Normally we don't get into issues of what's, this is called textual criticism. Uh, again, the, the issue is the Bible was written um, you know, by John, in this case, the Gospel of John. John wrote it or dictated it to someone who wrote it down. And they didn't have, um, you know, it wasn't on a digital tablet that he could then say, press send. It wasn't uh, something where he could hand to uh, someone who wrote over to uh, Kinko's and say, make me 4,000 copies of this. Uh, everything was hand copied. And, and so the hand copies will have differences. That's just, if you... Uh, were to hand copy a, 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 a note that you wrote, uh, if you made 50 copies, we would find differences in it. Most of them insignificant. You didn't have the comma, you capitalized, you misspelled, you, whatever it might be. So most of our textual issues, um, that's it. I remember one of the passages one time, I think one of the Gospels, uh, does it end with the word amen or not? 
Some manuscripts said yes and some no. No great theological text is going to be challenged, challenged by that. It's just a, you know, so those things don't bother me. Sometimes it's uh, his or, or their, uh, very similar. You know, so, those, so those are the kind of issues. This is a biggie, because the whole passage uh, is missing in a number of manuscripts. In a nutshell, let me just say this. So the earliest manuscripts we have of the Greek text do not have this passage, or what they call it, a pericope, this, this uh, paragraph text. But in the older manuscripts, the, the vast majority of Greek manuscripts have this, but the earliest don't. Now again, I don't want to get too technical, but I'm going to show you the kind of data that you look at when you're trying to think this through. This chart represents the evidence support, showing manuscripts that have um, the, the adultery pericope. And I'll try and show you how to understand what this is saying. Um, first of all, the 5C, 8C, those are centuries, all right? So in the 5th century, and then these 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 up here and no category, that's kind of a um, uh, one of the categories they have, they have categorizing manuscripts. The first category, these are very, very important manuscripts to consider. Other categories, less and less important. We're not going to worry about that. Uh, but but I, I want you to notice, so the 5th century is the earliest we have for having the adultery passage. So the earliest evidence we have doesn't show up until the 5th century. That would be the, the 400s. One manuscript uh, is there, the D05. Uh, okay, is what we will call him. And then there's some others here, as some other evidences here, but but that's the best we have. And then you start noticing, that's not, the next manuscript evidence we have doesn't show up until the 8th century. And then the 9th century, uh, we start seeing more, and then there's, it's just bunches. These are more significant manuscripts. But we really don't see the manuscript evidence for this in abundance until we get to the 9th or 10th century, so nearly a thousand years after the time of Christ. Okay. So by way of comparison, let's look at the the, the chart that um, that represents not having. So this is the evidence for including the adultery passage, and you can see it's it's doesn't show up until late, and then it's in abundance. Here's the other one. This is for the passages, manuscripts that do not have the text. Now notice the first one is 3rd century. And this papyrus 66 and 75, those are some of our earliest manuscripts. So we're talking in the 200s, don't have it. Uh, this is uh, Olive and Bate, uh, B. They, they, they have it in the 4th century. So, notice though, there, you don't see as many manuscripts here, do you? So this is a the, the minority number, but they have the early support. And so what people typically argue is, well, the later manuscripts, they're all copying from the same manuscript, so it doesn't really show you what the original is. Do you kind of get the idea so far of just the evidence? Does that make sense? And... Um, and some of the manuscripts, though, even if they have it, they'll put up like an asterisk, like explaining, you know, to su suggesting this may or may not be here. 
Some of them will have a, um, a couple of manuscripts have space left. Like they know it's supposed to go in there, but they didn't put it in there. So why did you leave, man, you know, these, these, these parchments and such were not cheap. And so why would you leave that big space there? Well, they, that tells you they were aware of it. One bit of evidence that's really striking to me is St. Jerome. You ever hear of St. Jerome? Um, St. Jerome, uh, you're, you're, you're not good Catholics, okay? St. Jerome uh, did, wrote the, or translated, I should say, the Vulgate. That's the, the Latin translation. The, this, that is the standard text of the, of the Catholic Church. And so if you were to get a Catholic Bible and go to the front there, you know, a lot of times they'll tell you where they got the texts that they came from. They will tell you this is based on the Latin Vulgate. That's the authoritative, inspired text in the Catholic thinking, but they'll consult the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Well, well Jerome went to Bethlehem to do his work. Uh, he, he, had, he studied Hebrew from the Jews so he could translate the Old Testament. He's, uh, what, 4th century, I guess. And he says many manuscripts have it, many don't, and, and some don't. But he describes that there were, earlier on, a bunch of manuscripts. What's fascinating, so many of the best scholars will say, most, if not all of them, the best scholars will say, the evidence does not support including this in the text of John. But virtually everyone says... But everything about it rings authentic. And so we think it is an authentic event, but just doesn't belong at that place in John. Um, so, and, and so how that happens and all that, everybody throws up their hands and says, we don't know. Um, you know, what, the other suggestion, I think it's Calvin that says, now why are these, now Calvin would not have had the, these older manuscripts. Now those are later discoveries. And so, but he's saying, you know, oh look, um, some of the early fathers, maybe Augustine, doesn't include him. And they wonder, is that because it was just too sensitive a topic? And so we just, we aren't going to talk about that? I don't know. But we're going to preach the text as, as authentic. Yes? So, you know, the original guys that, got, that were all commonly come together to write the first King James Bible and how they had checks and balances. I just watched a very good video on that. And they had lots and lots and then this group would do a, a section of the Bible and then that, then they pass it on and they had so many different groups to check each portion before they ever said, okay, yeah, this is going in the Bible. Did they include yes. the original writers of King James? Did they include this scripture? Yes, because okay. it, they were looking at what's called the Textus Receptus. Which you know that's Latin for the received text. Now it was based on just a few manuscripts. You know, the, the, Erasmus is really the the one who kind of started putting that together. Remember, Erasmus was the guy that was the opponent of Martin Luther. But we won't get too far into that. But <laughs> but, but anyway, so he he gathered some of these texts and some of them. They, but they just had a handful of them that you know that they were that is built. On. But those later those were later manuscripts and they had it in them. So all of that check and counter check was more based on translation. They they just work with the text that they have, the Greek okay. text. Okay. 
So I, I mentioned that just because you're going to read along and you'll see that in your column or a footnote or in the study Bible. And that I just want to give you a feel for what the evidence kind of looks like. Well, we're going to go ahead and deal with the text as there. Um, so I, you know me, I like to show you some background things. Um, I, saw, I came across this recently and thought you'd find it interesting. We, we talked about the Pool of Siloam. Here's an artist, artist's um, representation of what that Pool of Siloam looked like. You can see it's rather large. And, and if you look carefully in there, I don't know if you can see, but, but you can actually see there's stairs down into it. This was an, a, a, a mass immersion tanks where people would go for ritual immersion before going into the temple. And so it was huge. And uh, you get a feel for it. And then this is kind of an overview of the Jerusalem at the time. Notice down here is the Pool of Siloam. Okay? And if you follow, there is a pathway that goes all the way up. And, and I'm not sure if they would have gone up the ramp and in. I suspect more likely they went through these steps and into the gates here and into the Temple Mount. Yes? Um, did, they, did they people self-immerse? They immerse themselves? Or, okay. Yes. And so this would be called a mikvah in, in, in the Jewish customs. And so it was done for ritual purification. If you had some issue that um, uh, an oozing sore that, that healed or whatever it might be, you contacted a dead body, those kinds of issues, um, you would need to be purified before you could enter into the temple. And so they would uh, go and immerse themselves. That's why John was called the baptized herb. So people were already immersing themselves, but John was baptizing people. And so that's that was different. And so that was a, you know, that's why I was, you know, no, but he took a Jewish custom. Uh, I remember years ago reading uh, someone who was arguing for uh, baptism by sprinkling. And when it says, he said, you know, Israel is a desert land. Uh, when it says thousands were baptized right after Pentecost, that'd be impossible in Jerusalem. He probably wasn't the best authority to read on the matter. I mean, was there enough water? Look at that. You could baptize, you know, 3,000 really quickly, you know, in that process. So all that to say, yes. And, and that wasn't the only, that was a major tank. Up around the, up those stairs that I showed you, uh, no, up these, around these stairs here, which again, you may not see as well. Let's see if I can. And there are stairs right down in here. Uh, and all in this area, there were other uh, mikvahs in this area. Yes. So, what, based on your map, can you show us where Jesus healed the man that was so crippled he couldn't get in and beat the others to the water? Where is that yes. healing uh, done? That's in, so this down here is the Pool of Siloam. We haven't gotten there. That's the healing of the blind man. That, you're talking about the Pool of Bethesda, which is up here. Okay. And I'll show you, I think, a picture from that perspective in a little bit. So the Pool of Siloam was 500 meters from the spring. Is there a reason they put it way down there? Is that an entrance to the city? Or? Well, you see where the gates are. Um, and I think the Pool of Siloam, let's see. So could you, like, ritual clean yourself before you even enter the city kind of 
the temple? No, I think it's more the temple. That may have had where the buildings already were, but also this is, you'll notice this is a low spot, which makes it easier to collect water. This is something they understood uh, in the days of Hezekiah. Um, that was written out of the engineering texts later in modern street engineers. Uh, but, but in Hezekiah's day, they had a theory that water ran downhill. Um, <laughs> well, that was not a small stream running through that. No, it's, it's, and what's interesting, when we saw the film of them going through that tunnel, um, the, I'm trying to remember exactly where you would put that. It's over here somewhere, um, it, but it's outside the city gate. And so then you go in, but some people apparently um, didn't get through the tunnel later tours because the water got too high. Um, I've heard that, but and you can get in there, and if you have any anxiousness about uh, small dark spaces and the water is kind of rising, you know, up in your, it can be a little anxious. Um, so, um, so that so that's something more on that. Uh, we'll come back to this set of situation of some more pictures later. I'll, I'll just mention while I'm looking at this, so here's the Temple Mount. And you know what's up on the Temple Mount? <coughs> the Temple. The Temple. Back then it was the Temple. The Dome of the Rock came later. And so on Temple Mount, then it was the Temple. And you can see the courtyards around it. Uh, I, don't know, it's, I can't remember now. I think it's 35, 36 acres. Greatly, you know, Herod did a lot of that to make it that big uh, flat area. But this is the Mount of Olives over here. So this is the Kidron Valley down here. That's going to come up in a little bit. Okay. And then where is this, um, the cross where Jesus would be? Um, kind of? I think we would say it right over in here. That's actually this. This all depends on, uh, you know, which archaeology, which which cross we think is the legitimate, which the tomb the legitimate. But either way, and um, you notice there's a where the, the the gates, where the walls are situated, helps us understand where the cross had to be. Is that it had road to be outside. Like a road to Bethlehem down this way. This one here. Which way would you go to Bethlehem? I'm just trying to get. I didn't know angels did this back then. <laughs> this was like something an angel be an angel view. Yeah, exactly. So where is Bethlehem if I was leaving the city? Which direction? This it's south. south it's way? south. It might be down in this direction. I'm not sure. That looks okay. like the the road they might take. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I like that. It's a nice map. It's helpful. So back to now, looking at our text a little bit more. Everyone went to his own house. So remember, they were all gathered in the in the for the tabernacles. Everybody left, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught. So, again, now here we're going to look at it from the north. Siloam is to the south. The um, To the north is the Bethesda Pool. Here's the edge of the Bethesda Pool. But I want this view because it kind of shows you here's Mount of Olives. It's a little different looking today. Um, so here's a picture. We're on the Mount of Olives looking at the Temple Mount. And now we can accurately say, uh, or the question I like to ask is, what's in the Dome of the Rock? 
a rock. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and that goes back to uh, shortly after Muhammad's death, Islam um, spread out and conquered, and, and conquered this region and established uh, this mosque. Uh, this is the Al Aqsa Mosque over here. This is the Dome of the Rock. And so down in here, you can see this is the Kidron Valley. And we're looking, you can see a lot of white things. These, this is a very honored uh, Jewish cemetery. And so this is the one of the great hopes would be to bury here. I've heard it suggested that the reason you want to be buried on the Mount of Olives is some Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it says when Messiah comes, he's going to come to the Mount of Olives. And so you have a lot less dirt to go through <laughs> if you are already there. Coming now, looking now, we're going to look. We're, now we're standing on the dome of the, on the, the uh, Temple Mount, looking across. So, so it just gives you a feel. So, this is a little cemetery right outside the walls. This is a Muslim cemetery. There's a little road there that wasn't there at the time, but you see the Kidron Valley, and then um, there's churches all over the place on the Mount of Olives. But you can see the uh, the the this is in the area of where. Jesus would have been praying with his disciples in this church. There is a rock that is the theory. This is where he prayed. So this is the Mount of Olives. And so it just kind of gives you a feel of what he um, would, you know, this is where the, he went from Jerusalem. And there, there, I think there was a bridge here at this point. I'm not really clear. But I believe there was a bridge. But he would have crossed over the Kidron Valley and go up the Mount of Olives to stay in Bethany, which is just over the crest. And who lived in Bethany? Lazarus, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so um, it's been said this is his favorite place on earth. This was a place where he could be loved and welcomed and received, you know, your friend Lazarus. So, but this is where he would come and during the Passover week, this is, he was back and forth to Bethany. Okay. So I, I just like to kind of you know, in, in my mind, I see these things as we're reading through the passage. Sometimes it's helpful to just get a perspective on what things looked like. Okay. Yes. This, the scripture said that he went to the Mount of Olives, not that he went to Bethany. So, and somewhere I read that he did he camped out on the Mount. Um, during, especially during Tabernacles, he would have camped out because uh, everybody was camping out. So even if you went to Bethany, you would camp out in Bethany. Uh, but just the, you know, Bethany is just over the crest of the Mount of Olives. So that, that, that would say that's the direction he went to. Um, yeah, once, I think once the festival's over, I'm not sure that he would have been camping out here. People would have been clearing out. So let's talk about the Temple Mount, because one of the questions I just like to think, where was he when he was teaching? So this is the Temple Mount. These are the stairs I was talking about. Here's another mikvah, another baptismal font. And, and, and the amazing thing is, you can go sit and stand on these stairs today. Um, but you, they would go up these stairs, you can see some gates, and then they would come up out here. Then um, there are, so this is the area that's called the, the Court of the Gentiles. Here there is a wall uh, that separates the court of the Gentiles from the temple precincts per se, and there was a sign on it. 
know, if you basically to Gentiles, if you cross this, you take your life in your own hands. Okay, um, which shows you there is a strong correlation between Texas and the Jews. I mean, a <laughs> warning: uh, trespassers will be violated. Um, so, so that that's uh, we, they've discovered that. Sometimes. So that's the, this court of Gentiles, inner court, women in this area, um, and then court of the women, and then and he'll pass through these doors, and this is where the, the Jewish men and, and priests could be, and of course the temple, where there's the holy place and the holy of holies. Kind of does that kind of look familiar? So I'm so you're going to see in this video. You see this? This looks pretty impressive structure here. Lots of pillars, a big colonnade. Uh, this is an area that would have been frequently teaching would have happened. Uh, good acoustics and all that sort of thing. But he could have been sitting. I'm going to guess, especially because they bring this woman to him, they wouldn't have done that into the holier precincts. So that supports the idea to me. He's in the court of the Gentiles, to the where the biggest crowds could be. Remember, that's the area he cleared out um, and the cleansing of the temple. He does it twice. Okay. Before we jump forward, any other questions? Yes. Can a Gentile do enough ceremonies to become an official? Yes, you could convert. And then you could go all the way. Yes, only not a, women. You would be men considered a, go all the way in. You'd be considered a proselyte, a convert. Right? So you could convert, and you would have to have a, a baptism ceremony as part of that. So let's look at this video and, and uh, get a feel for what it look like. The music is not what you would have heard in the temple at that time. That's that colonnade I was telling you about. There you go. Thought I'd just go ahead and let you hear where that came from. So, uh, questions on that? You got a, just a feel for it, it's just you know, remarkable. But the, the curtain that separates from holy, holy to 
the Hokie Hokies. Looked like it had a slit. It, it, it did, yeah. And I only thought of it as one huge curtain, which I'm assuming they would go around the outside edges when they did when the high priest would finally go in once a year. And that was what was rent all the way. Correct. That was a solid piece. So I'm not sure what they would deal with that curtain okay. was. Or if that's post-resurrection. I mean, yeah, that's post-resurrection. The new, the second curtain. Yeah. They had to fix. So, um, so go back. So you get a feel for what the area looked like and crowds would have been there. And then they were told the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and they set her in the midst of them and said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. I want you to just look at your text for a little bit or and examine and what do you see observed in this passage? What strikes you? Anything stand out to you is interesting to observe? She's the one in trouble, not him. She's the one, though caught in the very act, they're, somehow the guy got away. Um, okay, what does that suggest to us? It's a setup. Setup, which that's the Greek word here for. for uh, yeah, it's just, it looks very much like it's a setup. They're also unclean if they actually touched her. If any one of them, they probably had their some of their soldiers from the temple touch her to bring her. Spear point or something. Or yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying this is probably happening in the court of the Gentiles rather than in, in a holier area. Um, yeah, so but it, everything about it seems this was a big setup. Um, okay. Anything else strike you? What did Jesus write in the, with the, in the dirt? You would not believe how many pages have been arguing what he wrote. Uh, and each one has an exciting and compelling thought to it. But this is one of those things where the answer is, we don't know. You know, um, there's, you know so speculation is a lot, could be a lot of fun here. Uh, but it... it it um, notice at least for a moment he's not looking at them. It's as though he didn't hear. He's just kind of, you know, he doesn't just immediately engage them. But he's already broken them just in that one act. He's. He didn't. You're right. He didn't engage them. I mean, he's already broken. It's like they had this big plan. We're going to set him up, and as soon as he done that. Shattered. He's and not he shocked. With a single word, it just, it just. Yeah. So, so here's the. This kind of reminds us, doesn't it, of uh, uh, what do you think? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's one of those. Either way you answer, we've got you. If you say don't pay taxes to Caesar, we're going to tell Caesar you're going to jail. If we say do pay taxes to Caesar, you have uh, just offended the zealots and the nationalism of Israel. Uh, you're showing it, you know, so so either way, we're going to make you unpopular or illegal. And so what does he say? Let me see the coin. Well, wait a minute. You're carrying an image of Caesar in your pockets? In other words, they considered that idolatry. You guys, every one of you has idols in your pocket. So it's kind of like, where do they go from here? Give Caesar what's his. Let him have his idols back. Excellent. Uh, well, here, um, uh, there's a there's things going on here that um, he's letting them uh, cook their goose, but they're setting it up in a similar way. Look, we've got a situation. Woman, 
there's no question we have the evidence. Well, that would that would mean they had to have at least two witnesses uh, to testify. That was required by the, the Jewish law, and so um, if and, and so they're saying we've got a open and shut case. Um, and so if you say stone her, for one, you could get in trouble with the Romans because you're not we're not allowed to execute. If you say don't stone her, then people are going to say, I well, see you don't really believe the Bible. So they think, okay, we've got you in the corner again. And so he just kind of lets them stew. Maybe they're patting each other on the back and saying, we got him this time, we got him. Then maybe his disciples are sweating. <laughs> um, so when they continued asking, so they kept haranguing him. Um, again, showing to me that you know they might think he's afraid, but to me, just showing he's in control. He's in control. By the way, it's one of the things with uh, dogs. When we see a dog barking, a lot of times we try and tell them to be quiet and all this kind of stuff. Have you ever noticed how a dog silences another dog? They ignore it completely. That's their way of saying you're nothing. <laughs> like I've watched our dog. All these dogs at their fence and all this kind of stuff. She just keeps plodding along. She hears them. But if you look, then you've engaged them and you kind of, now you've got, so that's what you do is you just ignore them and they're not there. And um, so, so Jesus is not going to get rattled by them. He's doodling in the dirt. And then they continued asking and raised him, he raised himself up. So now he's going to stand kind of eye to eye. And his answer is basically, he who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. There's a question. What point is Jesus making here? What's he, what's he, what's he getting at? Pardon me? Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's, everybody's guilty, yep. Take the beam out of your own eye before you worry about respecting the others. Yes, yeah, so he said that earlier, didn't he? Take that, if you got a beam in your eye, what beam might they have in their eye? He's pointing to God because he who is without sin is only True. That is only, he is well, only God is without sin. Everyone here is guilty. And these guys are guilty of a big setup. You know, they're guilty of of of, 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 of orchestrating this whole thing. And um, and so, you know, they're not you know, they're not here coming clean of heart, deeply offended. This whole they're they're, they're all party to this whole thing. It's a setup. And so he's um, saying, okay, whoever's without sin, um, let him be the first one to throw a stone. In biblical law, the witnesses, you know, were the first ones that had to throw the stone. There was, are you serious? You know, there was, you didn't bring testimony unless you really were convinced this was right. What's their response when he puts it to them in that way? They just start filing out, don't they? And isn't it interesting? The oldest one first. So that would mean like the, the, the leading rabbis. Isn't that interesting? So here are the great Pharisees and rabbis, the gray hairs, uh, walking out, unable to say, well, I'm without sin. Uh, but basically, I'm sure they had conversations on the road home. 
you you had a terrible idea. My idea, I thought it was your idea. They were caught, cooked again. It, it failed, but they were he defeated them um, in the process. And the older you are, the more sins you have. I can't imagine living eight or nine hundred years. <laughs> I mean, we have to watch and guard every thought, every word, constantly. Yeah, age doesn't make that go away. The longer you're here, the more the more sins you have, even the ones you're trying to dodge and avoid. Absolutely. And so this woman's left alone with Jesus. There's another interesting thought. Again, speculative, but I think people who had a sensitivity to who Jesus was felt would probably feel uncomfortable. Here she is feeling tremendously guilty. And she is before this holy one. You know, know what I mean? I think there might have been uh, not a sense right away of relief as much as feeling uncomfortable here in the temple before this godly man. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, so he first he knelt down and riding while they were talking. He stands to confront them. Then he goes back down just to kind of let them deal with what they're going to do. Then he stands again to speak to the woman. Woman, where are the accusers of yours? What do you think about him calling her just woman? In our in our world, that'd be, that'd be considered probably disrespectful, wouldn't it? Um, and of course, in, in our culture, the question is, how do you know? Well, we won't get into that. Uh, but, but remember, he calls his mother woman. So this is not this is not a uh, um, an unkind uh, ma'am might be kind of the way you're, you're you know, this is not disrespectful at all has no one condemned you he asks her and she says no one Lord and Jesus said to her neither do I condemn you go and sin no more why doesn't Jesus condemn her because he told us that he didn't come this time to condemn the world but to save the world when he comes back, he will be judged. So Jesus came and he announced in, or we heard in John 3, that he didn't come to condemn. Other thoughts on this? What if? What other reactions do you have to this this um, interaction? He must have known that she had a heart of repentance. Why do you think that? Why do you think oh, that he... Because he didn't condemn her and he said, go and sin no more, so... It seems like there was something in there, you know. So what? If, so uh, now this is how we do theology. How many think she was repentant? <laughs> I'm inclined that direction too. Let's come back on Sunday and, and, and so whatever you know, what we're trying to do is surface some things. Maybe you can think about as as you read this text and look forward to Sunday. Um, what do you think? Is she repentant? Is she repentant? I'm inclined to think that's what's going on here. Um, and that's why, and, and then he tells her, go and sin. Literally, that would be, stop sinning. Now, of course, if I can tell you to stop sinning, uh, that we're going to sin. But no, he's, he's, he's calling for a change of life. Well, how could he do that if he hadn't, if it wasn't grounded in that repentance? I also thought that... Um 
we're supposed to model ourselves after him and his behavior. So he's also, he is modeling what he wants from his disciples, how he might want them to approach these difficult situations to teach repentance and there is forgiveness. It's not just law, 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 law anymore, you know, because he's, 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 yeah, he's teaching these disciples through his actions what he wants. So he's modeling for them a response of compassion. But, but remember, well, first of all, like John the Baptist, he got his head chopped off because he was confronting sin. Jesus, remember, he told us his, back in John chapter 6, he didn't come into Jerusalem because, or is it chapter 7, um, they didn't like the fact that he spoke against how they were living. So I think um, it would not have been unnatural for him to confront this woman and say, um, what have you, been, you know, what's going on here? Uh, but I think this whole encounter has been a con confrontation. And so I do think that he's, he's, there's a repentance aspect that he's telling her now, live out that repentance. Um, yeah. So uh, we've got some study to do before the before Sunday, but some things to think about. Um, a powerful passage in many ways. Any other thoughts before we stop there? a setup. Maybe she wasn't a willing participant. If she was, if it's a setup, maybe she wasn't a willing participant. Mm. I don't know. That's a possibility. I, I'm inclined to think she was. Um, but again, it's a you know, that's why, you know, these guys must have felt guilty having this whole setup thing, you know. And so that's why he could say, okay, anyone without sin, it's, they're probably, it's probably bothering them all along. No, no, it's all right, it's all right. As long as we can get Jesus, let's do this thing. And so then when he looks them in the eye and says, okay, if you're without sin, they're thinking, I think they were all convicted. Thank God. Well, let's uh, stop there. And uh, let me pray, and then we'll uh, then go from here to hearing how to pray for one another. Father, we thank you for this text. But Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and his uh, wisdom, his grace, his compassion. And Father, help us to walk in his footsteps, to be faithful followers of Jesus in our wisdom, in our holiness of life, in our compassion, Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.